Amen. Amen. I'm speaking this morning a little bit about the influence that marketplace or business has uh, in terms of the gospel. It's just an idea I want to convey and I hope it will encourage those of you who are in the marketplace. Maybe you'll never be in the sense of like a, a pastor preaching in a pulpit, doing that kind of ministry and um, that's good because uh, it's, it's not necessarily the best thing for, for someone to do. It's just one of the many things that someone can do for God. And so today I want to share a little bit about how God sees all of us in terms of money and making money and using money and also those who are in the marketplace. So um, in Jesus' sermon, if you wonder which one is Jesus' sermon? In Jesus' sermon, the one you can find in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we know it is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins like this, and I'll read from Matthew 5, verse 1 to verse 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And it says there in my Bible, the Beatitudes, which actually you might see in your Bible, but hopefully not on the slides. And then verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's happened is Jesus has seen a whole lot of people. Uh, he's gone up the side of the mountain and he sits down. His disciples come to him and he opens his mouth and teaches them. I guess that in that context is whoever's there, but certainly his disciples. And he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to go through all these different blessings and I'm not sure why the church adds this heading in the Bible the Beatitudes but somewhere along the way they started adding uh, various little titles that aren't actually in the original scriptures and sometimes when you're reading and maybe you're new to Christianity or you're new to churchy stuff you find these new terms like Beatitudes and I just want to encourage you I didn't even know what Beatitude means <laughs> Is this like the B attitude I should have? I don't know. Actually, I googled it. That means blessing, which is why Jesus carries on and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed, blessed, blessed. It actually just means supreme blessedness or blessings. But I want to encourage you to look beyond jargon like Beatitudes and terminology when you come to your faith in Christ. Don't look at it through religious lens. Look at it not just through churchy terms, but look at it as Jesus wrote very simple things to us that we can understand. So back to Jesus' sermon. It's a very long sermon. It's mostly a bunch of teachings. And mostly the teaching is given as simple statements. Jesus basically says, this is how things work. This is how we should live, just states it. And this is how it ends at the end of Matthew chapter 7. Remember I said Jesus' sermon is Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. So it's a three chapter sermon, many points. And this is how it ends in Matthew 7 verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Interesting. So, so Jesus is teaching with a kind of a conviction that he knows what he's saying. He's not just saying something someone else told him to say. 
He's not teaching the way the scribes taught the law. He's actually teaching within his own authority because he is the word of God and he's bringing the word of God and he's telling the people this is the truth. And it's, it's convicting them. They're astonished at his teaching. And notice by the end, it starts with his disciples because he saw the crowd went up the hill, sat down with his disciples. They, then he taught them. But then by the end, everybody's there and everybody's been listening. I'm sure with this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took a lot longer than I will today. Also, that's just to remind you, you know, if you sit in church for an hour and someone preaches for an hour, just consider yourself lucky. Jesus probably taught at least half the day and some of the people got hungry and didn't even know where to go for a burger. So, Jesus definitely took longer than I would today. Also, notice there's no major engagement with the people. What do I mean? When he talks, he just makes these statements and tells them this is how it is. He's, he doesn't even at the end, we just saw how it wrapped up. He just finished. And then everyone was astonished at his teaching. He didn't say, give me your feedback, what do you think? He didn't say, um, we want to rate that, you know, give us a little bit of a form to fill in, feedback form. No, none of that from Jesus. He didn't call for a response. He didn't say, you know, can I get an amen or can I, you know, I mean, we can do that. And I love hearing the amen. So when I, I'm out in my insecurity when they say, can I get an amen? That's fine. But Jesus didn't need the affirmation. He was doing a proclamation of truth. That's how the Word of God should come to our lives. He's demonstrating something powerful. Some things are not a discussion. They're just true. We're living in a world where everything is taken as a your opinion versus mine on the internet. But Jesus didn't engage in a debate. He just sat there for hours and hours and He told them this is how things are. And they were astonished because He taught with authority. He had authority because actually he's God made flesh. There is God, the creator of the universe, telling people this is how life works. He's the one who made life. And so in this sermon, Jesus says some things about material possessions and money. In Matthew 6 verse 19, it's well known, I'm going to read this passage from Matthew 6 verse 19 through to verse 24. Jesus said this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Hands up if you've ever had anything stolen by a thief. Ever had any, I've had people break in my house and take my stuff. One day I woke up and I realized they'd been there and my TV and everything was gone. It happens. So Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So there is perfect security somewhere. Yeah. You just have to know where. Yeah. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when they come and take your TV, it's a test of your heart. Do you love that thing so much that you're now desperately in turmoil? We had a TV. Soon I used to watch it. It was a nice one, a Sony. And then we just looked at the wall. <laughs> it was gone. There was no more TV. And in those days, we had no money at all to go buy another TV. So we didn't have a TV for a while. 
Maybe that's why we have so many kids. You get blessings, and God blesses you. So, in any event, eventually we got given a TV again by somebody, probably a fellow believer who felt sorry for us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he's just got a bit weird for a moment. Jesus is actually explaining something about this question of your heart longing for your treasure. And it's connected to your eye because like the mouth reveals what's in your heart, the eye also shows what's in your heart. If you keep looking for something in this world and longing for something in this world, and it's, it's, it's kind of like if that's just greed and unsatisfiable desire for more, you just want stuff or you just want more money, you just want possessions. It's like Jesus is saying that's void of life. It's devoid of life. It's got, it's got no light in it. If your eye is looking for the wrong thing, it's darkness. And even worse, your life is going to be empty. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he sums it up now in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We learn a lot about money and possessions in these six verses. I'm going to quickly summarize what we've already seen in these six verses. Firstly, we must not stockpile for ourselves. Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth where someone can steal it. So if you are gathering a stockpile, please don't keep your heart there because someone might take it. So the whole point is that would be pretty much a waste. So don't stockpile for yourself. How we administrate this area of our lives has eternal impact. Yes. What do I mean? Because when Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth, right after that, he said, store up treasure in heaven. So basically, there's a, there's a competition between how you deal with stuff, material stuff, and what results in eternity when you're storing up treasure in heaven. And I actually believe, and I'll jump a bit ahead in my ideas here, that how you administrate money and possessions, to a large extent, will determine what eternal rewards you receive one day because what we do with the things God's given us is how we can either do good or be selfish we can actually put stuff in heaven through our righteous acts treasure that we have yet to see better than anything the earth can offer and thirdly this is not just head stuff but heart stuff where your treasure is there your heart will be so it's a question of the heart the heart is revealed through the gaze of the eyes. The whole of us is affected by this. In other words, our entire being, our soul's joy, or the darkness or light within us is affected by this question. There is a contest, this is getting towards the end about verse 24, no one can serve two masters. There is a contest, money and possessions can enslave us, you can end up being the servant because Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. So there's this possibility that God will be your master or money will master you. 
it will be your master. You will be enslaved to money and possessions. And that happens in the heart, and it's a question of worship, and that's why we had to pass the baskets around just now, just to remind our hearts we worship God. And when you were struggling because you didn't want to put anything in there, you were in this context that I'm speaking about. And this is not a punt for you to give more money to the church. It's a push for me to teach you the truth that will bring you to freedom, so you'll stand firm in your faith. We cannot serve God and money. So the right order is to love God, not money. The result is, money becomes a servant of God's purposes. Yes. And we as servants of God must rightly steward money and possessions in our lives. That applies to all of us. But as you grow up, you get entrusted with more and more. And this is a question now of stewardship. Well, how does it work? I want to bring this back a bit now to the idea of people in the marketplace, people in ministry, people in standing in a pulpit who don't really have a normal job. Actually, this is my job. Maybe we get the wrong idea of being called as a disciple of Jesus and what it means to be a disciple. You see, Jesus, when he called his disciples, many of us as Christians, we read the story where he says, leave your nets and come follow me. And we see this kind of idealistic view of ah, they quit their day job and they just joined YWAM and became a drifting student leeching off everybody else's good will. Sorry, that was a bit of a slap at anybody who abdicates their responsibility to have a job. I don't mind if somebody joins YWAM and tours the world for a year and does mission. That's fine. Mission is a good thing. But there's a motive question underneath it. If we've idealized a kind of a ministry thing as being the right way to follow God, we can easily actually step out of God's call on our life and into some romantic notion of ministry which isn't necessarily God's plan for us. And that's important because when you see the, the disciples being called to leave their nets, you need to not just stop there and say, that's the ideal. The greatest people in the world quit their jobs and became missionaries, and I'm just the loser who has, has to go to the office every week. That, that can be a wrong view, where you think your work at the office, or your work in the classroom, or your business that you're running is in some way second class because the true disciple left his day job to follow Jesus. I want to tell you that's not actually what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus called a couple of guys to leave their nets and follow him. And they later weren't the only disciples, because when um, the book of Acts opens, you find that there are at least 500 eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and just a few chapters later, there are 3,000 people added to the church. And those guys, those 500 and those 3,000, were generally not called to give up their jobs. Make sense? They just carried on. They went back to work. They got saved at Pentecost, and then what did they do? They went back to work after the Passover thing was over. So this is because their jobs are crucial to God's plan. God himself is actually a worker. Even in creation, the Bible tells us he worked because it says on the seventh day he rested from all the work that he had done. So God had been working when He created, and then He took a day off, and then you get the idea that God puts Adam to work in the garden, 
and he's given the stewardship to work it and take care of it and maintain it. God is a worker and this is before the fall. So the idea is work itself is something sacred and something holy. And there's a place for us to exercise faith in our marketplace ambitions and endeavors. That means where you are, whatever job you have, you can redeem it for the glory of God. You can say, this is my sphere, this is my field, this is my inheritance, this is where I'm going to live out the gospel, and this is where I'm going to bring glory to God, doing something that is as glorious as any ministry and any mission. And that's what most believers have had to do all through history. And so the fact is, going out and studying hard, getting a degree and making lots of money can all be done for the glory of God. Yes. And absolutely we must have this view that God wants to take a hold of the things that we will enjoy doing for His glory. We had an interesting conversation a few days ago when the elders were meeting for prayer on Wednesday. To make it sound spiritual, we chat and joke for about an hour and then pray for 10 minutes. But the point is we were talking about schools in this city. And because we love and appreciate Vision Valley School for allowing us to have this venue, which is such a blessing to us, we, one of the guys said something pretty interesting. He said, you know, since this school came and got started in Madagascar many years ago, there have been several others who have emulated what Vision Valley did. Now, no one's saying this is a prototype example of the best of everything. It's just someone who said we could do education at a slightly different level from many of the other schools. Not elite private schooling, not cheap, still private schooling, but not elite, more accessible to more people, but definitely nothing like the run-of-the-mill school you get on every you know, corner of the, the, the suburbs. It's, it's something else. Since then, it's developed a culture of a higher standard where people can actually access education in other nations after they graduate. It's also set an example culturally of a happier student commu community that's built on Christian values. And it's got classroom ethics where instead of maybe just doing the, the common thing of like the children are just there to do what they're told and parrot learn and just regurgitate and if they do the wrong thing they get shamed. Instead there are often, I'm not saying every classroom is perfect, but there are often Christian teachers who will actually bring dignity to the children that they're teaching, which you might not get in a, another school. I don't mean no other school, I just mean many common, let's say, schools that just don't carry a Christian ethic. What's the point of that? The point of that is, you can, in any sphere of work, establish something that has a Christian ethical basis and start to raise the level of blessing in a community. So when you look at your job, don't look at it like, oh, I just have to go and work and, and earn some money and I hate my life. Look at it as a calling from God that says, where I go, I can establish a value system that is countercultural to the world around me and reflects something of the goodness and grace of God. And so that's what we were talking about, how this school in a way has sparked off a whole new segment of schools within the city. And hopefully more, because schools are needed and schools can be a blessing in the long term. What did we have right when we looked at Jesus calling His disciples? I mean, we might have misunderstood thinking that it's better to leave the marketplace. 
probably better to stay in the marketplace unless you have a very, very clear call not to. But what if we have right? What we did have right when we looked at that example is that we are all full-time followers of Jesus. Yes. This isn't so much a choice as a new identity. So as a follower of Jesus, I'm not following Him um, in a way like He's just my teacher. Actually, I'm born again and I'm now a member of His family and my discipleship is built around being a new creature in Christ. Yes. Now that I'm born again, I want to live like a son of God. However, that Son of God lives, and there Jesus is the prototypical Son of God. He really is the truth. So, to those who look at their lives as disciples of Jesus, I want you to understand that you are a new creature in Christ, and you are part of the royal priesthood, and we are the priesthood of all believers. So even if you're a businessman or a businesswoman sitting here today, you're also a priest in the family of God, part of the priesthood of all believers. And that's how the New Testament characterizes us. That's why I say every one of us is in ministry, because every one of us is a minister of the gospel. As a believer, you have actually become something new, but you also carry then a new mandate, which is to reflect the gospel in your context as you become conformed to the image of Christ. So to those, the majority are called, who are called to business, to work, to earn money, to make money, this is a meaningful and spiritual calling. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 says this, Deuteronomy 8 verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. So, getting wealth takes something of a, a, a favor of God, where he gives you power to get wealth, and it's part of confirming his covenant. So there is a desire for God to show his goodness in the world by prospering things. That's why Adam's work in the garden was supposed to be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. The, the sea was teeming with fish. The land had animals of all different kinds. And Adam was to develop and increase the beauty of that context and its fruitfulness. Part of the covenant that God wants to give us. And there's this power to get wealth. That's as close as I get to preaching a prosperity message. You can, you can take it there, right? And that's, that's it. And what I did realize, when I look at the Word of God, and I look at the gifts that God gives, that God has given us different gifts in His body, that He's made different people with different talents, and that one guy's gift is not the same as another. So you get in Romans 12, a gift of administration or leadership, as well as in you know Corinthians 12, a gift of tongues. You get different gifts. You get people with a gift of faith. You get someone with a gift of generosity. I've actually met some people who have this gift of administration, which leadership, which is also impacts their finances, and then they combine it with a gift of generosity and I've met people who would just if I told you their story of how much they give it would blow your mind 
uncharacteristically graced with something supernatural that they've discovered about what God's called them to be. And the people I'm thinking of are not in church leadership or in ministry. They're just members of a church who God has granted success financially and they take that and just turn it outwards in an almost reckless way it seems they just give and give and give. It's magnificent to see someone living in the gift and call of God in the marketplace. So God's given different gifts and callings, but God wants to redeem them all. In other words, you may come into a career thinking about yourself. I want to be a doctor so I can drive a Porsche so chicks will dig me. That's like the, you know, it's trash talk. But really people sometimes think about their career that way. They think, I want to be this so I can be cool so I can get that. And it could be that shallow. And then you become a believer and God says, yeah, I put that desire in you to do business and make money and now I want to redeem it. I don't want to crush it or discard it. I don't want to um, tell you it's unholy. I want to redeem it and claim it for the kingdom. God wants to transform something that this world corrupts and perverts back into something glorious for His purposes. And that's what He wants to do with people in the marketplace through whatever gift and talent you have. He doesn't want you to quit your job. He wants you to work for His glory and love doing it well. Therefore, be in business to succeed. I tried it once. I was for a season in my life. I was a director of an IT company. And uh, for a long time I felt like a total failure because we never got rich, but everybody else was getting rich in IT. Wasn't that the quick way to money in the like 90s? Well, apparently for some, but not for me. So I, I, I managed to weather like a few years as a director of an IT company and then I got called to a full-time post in a church, which was always the thing my heart wanted, and I quit my marketplace job and entered eldership on a big eldership team as a kind of a little guy, nobody. Years later, I looked back at my job in IT, and I thought, I remember those days where we paid the employees and then there wasn't any money for my family. I remember the days that the cupboard was getting empty and I thought, I'm useless at doing business. I remember the days I thought, if only we had someone who could market, because I'm useless at marketing. I mean, this is the problem with you, if you're in IT, you're probably not always a people person and good at selling yourself, you know, in terms of promoting your ideas. And so we were great at coding, but we were useless at selling. Our company just kind of like, and eventually just before, we were really going to start getting into trouble. I could hand it over to some colleagues and leave. And actually they were fine because our business model protected everyone in the business. So they wound the business down. We closed the business with absolutely zero debts. So we owed no one anything, which is a win. I only realized that years later. I felt like a failure for some years. And then I looked back at that chapter and I realized, you know what, that business for over a decade or so managed to employ several people and support many families and they were all healthy and strong after that decade. What do you think that is? That's a blessing. That's a blessing. So when you're in business, 
You don't always have to measure success by, wait a minute, we became the best, you know, and drove the Porsche. Maybe what God wanted you to do was to employ five families and make sure that they were fed and clothed. Yeah. That was it. But it's glorious when it serves and blesses others. So if you're in business, be in business to succeed. Try to get rich, fine. But you'll know that you have an absolute emptiness in your soul, even if you're successful in business and there's no deeper meaning or purpose. The deeper meaning and purpose is when you no longer aim to spend it on yourself. In other words, the deeper meaning and purpose is when you do business for good, for the good of a community, for the good of some families who you can support, for the good of someone else. So what sense of purpose can you have? What is the potential? And in this, I just want to tell you a story I once heard. This is to inspire. It's also a bit of history, but it should allow you to think about business as something that God could use in a mighty way as an influential thing. This is, I'm going to read something of the Cadbury story, which some of you would know. This is at a time many, many, many years ago, just post-industrial revolution. People were building factories in the UK and Europe, and workers were working, and they were getting, you know, tough work conditions, and there weren't labor unions yet, and socialism wasn't really well understood, and all kinds of things were far more primitive than today's market. But into that context, one of the interesting parts of world business history was what happened with a group of people called the Quakers. The Quakers were actually founded probably around about uh, the time that guy Fox wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was almost like the father of the Quakers. So we're talking just post-Reformation, 16, 1700, sometime then. And out of the first few generations of Quakerism emerged this kind of strict work ethic, which later was also known as the Protestant work ethic, which was the idea that you would work really with high levels of integrity and justice and um, whatever, the, the good qualities of good business. Anyway, so the Quakers come out of that scene and the Cadburys were a family of Quakers. And I'm now going to read from a review of a documentary that uh, was made and the reviewer Donald McCormick writes this. This documentary, um, Quaker family about the Cadburys, who were famous for their chocolate, was produced in 2001 as an hour-long television program. In the 1700s, Quakers were excluded from the professions and from any office that fell directly under the crown. As a result, many Quakers went into business. So these guys, they were a bit fringe in terms of the church, they were a bit weird. So they were kind of pushed out and persecuted a bit, but they went into business and they were hard-working exemplars of the Protestant work ethic who wanted to imbue their businesses with Christian values. One of these was John Cadbury, a Quaker who went into the chocolate business in England. His Quaker values influenced much of his approach to business. For example, he believed that chocolate promoted health. Yeah, yeah. yeah we still believe that. He made sure his business products were of a high quality not the 18th century equivalent of junk food. In other words, he tried to make chocolate quality. His Quaker values also led him to help the poor. 
He was particularly concerned with the plight of boys who worked as chimney sweeps and he worked hard to end the practice of child labor. So he as a businessman made chocolate for the rich while he actually tried to stop the exploitation of the chimney sweeps. His sons, Richard and George, continued the firm after his death. They set the, to set Cadbury's chocolate apart from its competitors, they borrowed a chocolate manufacturing process from Holland. In those days, chocolate was thick and bitter, but this new Dutch process made it smooth and mild. Another aspect of Cadbury chocolate that distinguished it in the marketplace was its high quality, much better than its competitors, some of whom used brick dust as filler in their chocolate. Some people put water in honey. Some people dilute the milk. Some people don't understand how to do business for the glory of God. They, they, they try to trick you by selling you something that looks like that thing, but it's not that thing. And if you taste really good honey, you'll know when you're not tasting really good honey. So why do the guys do that? It's the devil. <laughs> so, Cadbury's also produced an innovative new chocolate drink that was a big success. What became Bourneville Hot Chocolate, as we know it today, it still exists, was interesting. The, the wife of one of these guys saw the factory workers lined up in the cold in winter and thought, how can we make these guys' lives better? And figured out how to make a hot chocolate drink to be able to hand out like you do a soup kitchen. Basically just letting factory workers drink an, a warm, nourishing drink. And actually it became a market win. It became like the biggest selling hot chocolate drink ever. So they followed that success by developing milk chocolate bars made with fresh milk. And these chocolate bars tasted much better than the competition. These two products sold like hotcakes. Quaker values influenced the second generation of Cadbury chocolatiers just as they had their father's generation. Quaker thrift, meaning they were conservative financially, made the Cadbury's cautious investors of their profits. The Quaker concern for the poor and belief in the value of learning led George Cadbury to teach reading and writing to the poor on weekends using his own Bible. So there's a managing director who's leading a very successful company and he's taking time on weekends to teach the poor how to read and write. Quaker values also led the Cadburys to build a factory and town that were intended to uplift the lives of their workers. Factory workers in the 1800s generally led miserable lives and had to put up with sweatshop working conditions. But the Cadburys had a vision for something different. A factory with decent working conditions and a town where the workers owned their houses, each with a garden in the back. They built this factory and town four miles outside the sooty industrial town of Birmingham. So here you've got the world, industrial revolution, people getting on the bandwagon to make production factories and Birmingham was thriving economically but it was sooty and dirty and the workers had terrible working conditions. And a Christian businessman came along and said, I want to actually do something so different that I need to build it somewhere else. So he went four miles out of Birmingham and he started a town called Bourneville. And he built a factory and he started to build other things to give the people who worked and lived there a good life. So this is what they did. They called the town Bourneville and it was a Quaker utopia for workers. It had health clinics and a swimming pool. 
The Cadbury's encouraged workers to go to math school. So they actually said to the workers, upskill yourselves. They forbade drinking and they sponsored sports teams. So they brought social transformation and gave the guys something to do besides drink alcohol. They said, why don't you play a game of cricket? <laughs> no, I'm paraphrasing. I don't really know what sports teams they supported. Probably rugby. I don't know. The Cadbury's efforts to provide workers with a better opportunity for a good life resulted in a fiercely loyal workforce. In the 1900s, the Cadbury's continued these Quaker-inspired socially responsible business practices. During World War II, they refused to use their factory to make armaments. You can debate whether that's right or wrong. The unique quality of the Cadbury changed when it became publicly owned in 1962. Soon after that, it merged with the Schreps Corporation. Once Cadbury was owned by pretty much anybody who wanted to buy its stock, the Cadbury family lost control of the company and most of the Quaker character disappeared. So if you come and say, oh no, it's, you know, it's like Nestle or Kraft now, it probably is. <laughs> anyway, this documentary about the Cadbury company makes it, clear that something, makes it clear that something important, something at one time unique to Quakerism has been lost. Up until the middle of the 20th century, one of the most prominent features of Quakerism was the Quaker business person. Quakers stood apart from other business people because of their simplicity, concern for workers, idealism, disdain for ostentation, that means they didn't want to look grand, and their modesty. Quakers were leaders in what would eventually be called socially responsible business. You'll hear these terms today, their roots are in Christianity. Quakers were leaders in what would eventually be called socially responsible business. They were scrupulously honest, refused to haggle over the price of goods. Why don't they like haggling? Have you ever wondered why, as a, as, a, as a Westerner whose thought was evolved through this, I don't like the market in Madagascar where you have to negotiate the price. Do you know why haggling is evil? If you don't, you need to figure it out. I'm not going to tell you right now. Haggling works in certain circumstances. I'm not just blanket condemning it. But it also is built around a kind of a deception, a trickery. Where if I can keep something from you and manipulate the conversation, we can agree on a price that isn't the right price. Fixed prices in the right sense of righteous business, not unjust greed, are actually right because there's clarity, there's no deception, it is what it is for what it says it costs. That's why it's better. Anyway, I've kind of half explained it now. So they refused to haggle over the price of goods. They opposed oppressive business practices such as slavery and refused to work in the arms industry. These Quakers had a huge impact on the way business was conducted throughout the world. In other words, from that generation, we're talking the 1700s, 1800s, that impacted the way business is done all over the regions where capitalism has spread. And lastly, I'm going to finish now just to, to tell you how quantifiable this impact is because I want you to think about what your job can achieve. You might not be a wealthy businessman, but you have to understand you can have a quantifiable impact yes. on the people around you through the way you work. In an article on the Quakers' ethics and capitalism, Simon Hill writes, Bourneville is the most famous result. The Cadbury brothers, George and Richard, had long dreamt of building a factory in a garden. William Higgins, a manual worker at Cadbury's, said that hope sprang up in the hearts of everyone. 
when they heard that the brothers had brought the, bought the necessary land in 1878. Over the next few years, Cadbury's moved their factory to Bourneville, fitted with the latest machinery, heated changing rooms and recreation areas. Long before Google, with its trendy playroom for the IT workers with their pool tables and their round bouncy balls to sit on. All those ideas that we could create this such a cool work environment for our employees. Where do you think those heathen got that from? The, the believers. Who actually did it because it was an act of justice, not to the trendy IT worker, but to the factory worker. So they gave them heating, changing rooms and recreation areas. Despite the expenditure, the company sailed more than quadrupled over the following decade. So people said, you're going to fail. You can't spend money on people like that and succeed in business. It's impossible. The scoffers who said the Cadbury brothers' ethics would drive them to bankruptcy had to swallow their words. Why? Because we read the text in Deuteronomy that says God gives you the power to create wealth. Over time, homes with gardens were added along with a cricket pavilion and a swimming pool. Oh no, now we do know it is cricket. And a doctor and a dentist were provided free of charge. In 1919, the infant mortality rate in Bourneville was only half that in Birmingham. That's four miles away. Four miles away, half. And while children aged 6 to 12 were found to be a staggering 2 to 3 inches taller than those in one of Birmingham's poorer areas. So here's Birmingham. Yes, the Christian businessman in Bourneville. And you can measure the impact that his business has had on people's lives. Two to three inches taller. That's incredible. So I, I, I think Tanya's sitting there. She knows where she's working. That's what's going to be the testimony in Ambuvu in decades to come. They're going to go there. They're going to measure things. And they're going to say, you know what? Babies don't die here as often, children don't die as often, the children are bigger, stronger and healthier. Yes. But in this case, all that was achieved by the businessman who was making chocolate for people who could afford chocolate. He said, I just want our community to be better than the others. And so he turned some of his money to uplifting the people that were making the money for him. You can do it. It's possible, apparently. Now, on a smaller scale, I think that that opportunity exists in every job. Yes. If I'm a school teacher, I can say in my classroom, I'm going to raise children to feel confident even when they make mistakes. So I won't belittle them or shame them, where other teachers in other classrooms have done things in this country that I've heard of where they could stand a kid on a table and say, you know, look at you, you're a fool in front of the other children. Well, that's because in an honor-shame culture, maybe you feel motivated to manipulate kids with shame. But as a believer, you come into a new culture, you say, I can bring the kingdom of God and its values into my classroom. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with the management of the school. That has to do with your ethics as a Christian. Take the values of the love of God that God has shown you and give it to the people around you. How are you going to treat your God now? Or if you're the gardener, how are you going to cut that hedge for the glory of God? You're going to say, when I work for my boss, he's going to be so proud to have hired me. His place is going to look the best. That's how I felt when I first worked as a, as a, 
a box carrier in a, in a shop. All I did was offload trucks and unpack boxes, but I made sure that everything was neat and straight for the glory of God. Didn't change the amount of money I got paid, that's for sure. <laughs> My point is, you can take Christianity into every sphere. Yes. You take ethics that God has shown you in His Word and you live it out where God has put you. That's what I wanted to share with you as an encouragement to you in the marketplace. Let's live the gospel at another level. Let's trust God to do things through us in our contexts for His glory. Please stand. I'm going to pray for us and then the band can come up and we can worship God together.